you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti. Hope you guys are all doing well or doing better than I was yesterday because I'm not going to lie to you, I was having a very rough day yesterday. Also, someone above me, like in the apartment above me, has been just throwing things around this morning. February is a hard month, okay? I'm just going to say I'm fully in the winter slump. The winter blues are kicked in high gear. Yesterday was a tough day for me. I just felt like I mean, it was Valentine's Day yesterday as I'm recording this, which definitely made social media a scary place to be as a single person who just wasn't in the best mood to begin with. And then, you know, had to see a bunch of happy couples on Instagram, which, you know, usually on another day, I could have dealt with that just fine. But it also felt like a lot of things were going wrong. Like I was just stupid mistakes in my work, things that 
were going live and I didn't realize that I had made a mistake and just like little ways where I wasn't feeling confident because like I just felt like every little thing was going wrong and every time something would go wrong, I'm like, you know what? Of course, because I am a wreck. I'm a mess and I deserve this and like just was not in a good frame of mind at all. But I did know that once I woke up today, it'd be a new day and I'd be okay. It's just like when you're in it and you feel like it's like quicksand, you can't get out of it. And the day is just getting worse and worse by the second. We've all been there. So luckily, yes, I woke up this morning. The sun was shining. It's a brand new day. The weather here in the city is actually fabulous. I just did a workout. I did self-tanner last night. And there's just something about doing self-tanner when you're just having a really bad day and then you wake up the next morning and you're like freshly tanned. I don't know. It could just be me. I know it's not just me that feels this way, but I just felt like a new person waking up this morning, went to the gym, put on a really cute outfit, just let all of the stress of yesterday fade away, knowing today is a new day. And I am honestly very proud of myself for getting myself out of that. But I know there will be bad days again, because with every handful of good days, there's going to be some bad days, the same way that every handful of rainy days, there's going to be a sunshiny day that pops up and you're like, wow, okay, like everything's okay again. So just wanted to be honest, transparent with you guys about just the fact that, you know, it's not all sunshines and rainbows over here. But if you listen to the podcast and have been a listener for a while, you guys know I tend to cover all of it. So it's no secret. But Last night, I actually, I turned my phone on Do Not Disturb and I just dove into reading and finalizing the research that I did for this episode. You guys know I love nothing more than to get my hands dirty and dive into something and figure out the reason for something and just figure out the story, get to the story. In another life, I would be a journalist and I actually studied journalism freshman year of college, but I changed my major. I just didn't think I was mean enough to be a journalist because journalists, you really have to, you know, deal with criticism, which I'm not very good at, but also get the story no matter what and, you know, make some people mad in the process. And I just didn't think that I was brave enough for that freshman year of college. I just didn't see that for myself. So I changed majors to doing more graphic design stuff. And I'm glad I did because I've been able to rediscover my love for storytelling and for researching and for getting the story together and like all of those things that a journalist does on my own and in my own way. And that's this podcast. That's why I do it. I just love it. So anyway, today's story is going to be a very good one. I don't want to spoil it by giving too many like preliminary details, but it was inspired by this Netflix documentary that I watched that I'm not going to tell you the name of because it really will spoil everything, but I will talk about it later on. And I'm also going to have it linked in the show notes. So if you guys want to watch it, it was a really good Netflix doc series, which I'm always down to hear your suggestions as well of documentary series you think I should watch because... I feel like I've seen like in my head, I think I've seen all the good ones or all the ones worth watching to date, but I definitely haven't. Like I definitely haven't. And also I'm a hugely judgmental of the cover image on Netflix, on HBO. I have all the different streaming services. So when I'm looking up documentaries, like I definitely look at the image, like the whatever you call it. There's definitely a different word for it, but like the the cover of the doc also the trailer. If the trailer seems meh, I'm not going to watch it. Like I am so judgmental like that. So if you guys have recommendations of docs that I haven't seen, please send them my way because they really get the juices flowing. And if you're not a documentary or docu-series person, like 
try because I didn't think I was either. Like when you hear it at face value, it sounds really boring, but really it's the best mode of storytelling. I just love it. I love it. Anyway, so I'm also very hopped up on caffeine right now and the endorphins from my workout, right? Endorphins? I think that's it. Anyway, let's get into the story, guys. It's going to start out with a story you might have heard before, but I promise we're going to dive into it in a way you haven't heard before. And just a little shout out, anyone who lives or has lived or knows someone that lives in Boston, Massachusetts, this is going to sound very familiar to you. And yeah, shout out to you guys. I have a bunch of friends that are from there and I visited a ton, but that's where our story takes place or begins. So let's just get into it. Take a deep breath, chill out. I don't know if you're on the treadmill or in the car or walking, but just listen to this story and really think about it. So let's get into it. In the early hours of March 18th, 1990, a car pulls up near the side entrance of a museum in Boston. Two men in fake police uniforms and mustaches push the museum buzzer, telling the night guard on the other end that they were responding to a disturbance and requested to be let in. And this makes sense because it actually was St. Patrick's Day weekend, so this could have been a very valid concern. Think about it, Boston, St. Patty's Day, like New York pops off for St. Patty's Day. So, you know, drunk people are out and about doing things, trespassing, all the stuff. So this is a valid thing that they could be responding to someone, I don't know, streaking across the museum yard or something. So the guard, and this is very hazy. If you guys watch this documentary, it'll make more sense. But the guard broke museum protocol and allowed these guys who he thought were police officers through the employee entrance. So instead of just letting them through the normal front door, he let them through the employee entrance. But again, these are police officers. So, you know, you do things for the law that you might not do for a normal person because you're kind of scared of them. Like I see a police officer and even if I'm doing absolutely nothing wrong, I still am like on edge that I'm doing something wrong. If I'm in the car driving and there's like a cop, I'm not even speeding, but I'm very aware of just everything just because I'm so scared of getting in trouble, you know? So the guy, the guard on duty lets the officers through the employee entrance and at the fake officer's request, he didn't know they were fake, he stepped away from the watch desk. Like they ushered him away from the watch desk and he followed them. And he and a second security guard on duty were then handcuffed and tied up in the basement of the museum. And I believe based on the documentary, the first guard allowed himself to be handcuffed because the officer said they had a warrant for his arrest for something. And I guess this guy was like, well, they got me. Like, he must have done something. (laughs) He was like, well, you got me. So these two guys were handcuffed, tied up with duct tape in the basement of the museum. The two fake police officers slash thieves then entered the main rooms of the museum, and in just 81 minutes, they had successfully stolen 13 of the museum's art pieces. And they didn't just take the canvases in their frames, like the whole kit and caboodle off the wall and run. They actually did something very strange. And this really pains me to say, but they intentionally took knives or some sharp object and cut the canvases out of the frames. These extremely expensive, extremely historic paintings, they cut them out of the frames and then the frames were just discarded on the ground. 13 works were stolen in all, not just paintings, some other sculptural elements and things 
were stolen, amounting to over $500 million in value. And today, 33 years later, there are still so many question marks about the robbery of this museum, which was called the Isabella, or is, it still exists today, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Some of the questions, why did they cut them out of the frames? Like, why did they not just take the whole thing? Why did they cut them out? What was the incentive? Was there some art collector that commissioned these guys to do this? How could the robbers sell if they weren't you know, attached to some black market dealer or something? How were they expecting to sell these things when they were so recognizable and flagged? Like everyone in the world knows that these things are stolen. How did they expect to sell them now? Like how did they expect to profit from this robbery? And then where are these guys now? Where are the guys? Where are the paintings? Where are the statues? No one knows, though there are many, many theories but none have been proven. And today, it's still a mystery. And if you're interested in those theories, definitely watch the Netflix documentary that I was talking about. It's called This Is a Robbery, The World's Biggest Art Heist, and it's on Netflix. Moral of the story with this is this museum was robbed, and it's still a mystery today of where the paintings are, why they did it, all of those things. It's a huge, huge, huge question mark, huge mystery. But the woman whose name was attached to the museum that got robbed made herself quite the mystery as well. And no one really talks about her. So today, instead of talking more about the robbery, because there's a whole documentary series on Netflix for that, today I'm actually going to tell you about the deeply interesting, often hated, mostly misunderstood namesake of the museum that was robbed because there's a story to tell there as well. And it's a good one. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I Isabella Stewart Gardner made quite the name for herself. She really established herself as this 
like I said, deeply misunderstood, flamboyant public persona, and it made her the talk of the town in Boston in the 1800s and the target for rumors that made it hard to figure out what was true and what was false. She was this educated, opinionated, sexually comfortable woman at a time when that was just not the thing to be. And people love to talk about her and spread rumors about her. And to give you an idea of who this woman was, or at least what the public thought she was, there's this image that it's an illustration, actually a drawing that covered a page in the local newspaper at the time showing Isabella walking through the Boston Public Library, clutching the mane like of a tame real live lion like a gigantic real lion and she's just strolling not a care in the world clutching the mane of the lion addressed to the nines and separately another image that you guys can visualize she shocked the audience at the symphony hall by showing up to a performance wearing a red Sox hat hat band it's called so like a headband but a hat band and it's just fully like red Sox attire and people saw these things and said in the newspaper it looks as if the woman has gone crazy and that is why diana sieve greenwald and nathaniel silver curators at the museum that isabella would ultimately create decided to clear her name and write a book on the truth i read it cover to cover yesterday and today I will share that truth. It includes a love story, a glimpse into Isabella's elaborate 19th century travels, an endlessly imaginative spirit, all of this leading to her prized creation, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, located in Boston, Massachusetts. Yes, the very one that would get robbed years later. But we're going to talk about the creation of the museum and about her, this creative, this person who truly did not let other people's opinions or her own failures dictate her path in life. She was such an inspiration, this woman, so let's get into it. If there's one thing to know about Isabella Stewart Gardner, it's that she was a collector of many things throughout her life, but to paint a picture of her self-confidence and her upbringing, we'll start with one particular collection of hers. She collected lace, exquisitely detailed, elaborate lace patterns from Italy and beyond. And among those in her collection, one stands out. It's this tattered fragment of a 16th century Belgian needle and bobbin lace that is rumored to have belonged to Mary, Queen of Scots. Isabella insisted that she was a descendant of Mary's, Mary being the strong, influential female monarch in an era dominated by men, it tracks because you'll see Isabella was a very strong woman herself and she felt like she was of that same character. So she must be descended from her. Also, she was Scottish. She collected more than just that lace fragment, though. She was very obsessed with Mary, Queen of Scots. She also collected other things, fragments of the queen's bed hangings, for example, other documents that really, you know, she would probably show at dinner parties and be like, oh yeah, this is just my relative, Mary Queen of Scots. Have you heard of her? <laughs> she was a true fangirl, kind of like how people buy things that the Beatles used to own for millions of dollars, as I've seen on my favorite show, Antiques Roadshow, and refuse to wash, I don't know, like a shirt or a hand if Harry Styles had hugged you. And, you know, people get to be fangirls about certain people. And I'm certainly a fangirl about many people. Taylor Swift, if she complimented my dress, I would wear that exact dress for the rest of my life. So, you know, that happens. But one Christmas Eve mass, Isabella wore an elaborate outfit that seemed to be influenced by her favorite portrait of Mary Queen of Scots. So this is all 
really not that important, but I'm leading with it just to show you how confident Isabella was in the things that she believed to be true and also her upbringing. Like she believed she was descended from royalty. And despite how convinced that she was, she wasn't. Though she was right in thinking that she was Scottish, it just didn't date back as far as she thought. Like she was Scottish by way of New York City. And of course, New York City, because I have a knack for bringing New York into every story I tell. But let's start at the very beginning of her life. Isabella Stewart was born in New York on April 14th, 1840. She was the oldest of four children and the only of her siblings to survive past the age of 26, which is wild. But I guess it kind of tracks for the time. There were lots of illnesses going around and not many vaccines. But the Stewarts were considered new money, which if you've seen The Gilded Age on HBO, my favorite series, and I'm so freaking excited for season two. If you guys haven't seen it, I'm deeply jealous of you. I feel that way about so many shows. I wish I could see it with fresh eyes and see it again. But this is definitely one of them. I love Gilded Age on HBO. But if you've seen the show or just know anything about the Gilded Age, which obviously it was this whole time period we've covered a few times on the podcast where there was this separation between old money and new money, a lot of drama that ensued between the two camps that thought, you know, one thought they were better than the other, obviously. But as the years ticked on, the new money families inserted themselves into society and became more respected. But the stewards were still very obviously new money and might have been expected to stay in their lane, meaning Isabella should have married someone also in the new money category. But as you'll see, she rarely did as she was expected to or told to. Our girl, Isabella, she was a strong one. So let's talk about this other guy, John Lowell Gardner. I always have such a hard time saying Lowell, L-O-W-E-L-L, Lowell. John Lowell Gardner Jr., his family was everything that Isabella's was not. Besides the fact that they both had money, Jack, as he was nicknamed, was considered old money. He was from Boston, so not New York like Isabella, and he was in the most elite of the Bostonian upper class. His lineage could be traced to a handful of founding families in Massachusetts, primarily the ones that made their money in international trade and shipping, which isn't very surprising. So yes, Jack came from money, but he was also a smart guy. He would go on to invest the money that he inherited and the resources that his family controlled in mining, railroads, industry across the U.S. internationally. So he just would increase his wealth and status over his lifetime. During the Gilded Age, Jack and Isabella's families both grew enormously wealthy. And as Isabella's new money family's wealth grew and grew, she finally saw herself on the same playing field as families like Jack and his old money family. And that is how they crossed paths and ultimately fell in love. And their love story actually begins with school. Not that they were at the same school, obviously, seeing as though Isabella was a woman and it was the 1850s. But as those with new money gained access to more and more experiences that were long reserved to those of the old money class, people like Isabella Stewart were given the chance to pursue an education, even though she was a woman. And obviously, it was a different sort of education than what the men were getting, but still a chance to learn and to become something bigger, which... 
I love to hear. So her family arranged for Isabella to go to Paris for finishing school, and it was there that she learned to speak fluent French and made quite a few friends. One of these such friendships would change the course of her life. One of Isabella's classmates in Paris was named Julia Gardner, and Isabella became close friends with Julia and also Julia's sister, Eliza. And it was through this friendship that Isabella's parents and Julia and Eliza's parents met and became friendly as well. And the two families really hit it off. They would end up going on a bunch of trips together and take tours all around the continent, which honestly sounds so fun. Like, two families joining forces and just like, you know, the girls are friends, the parents are friends, going on trips. Like that's definitely something that I want for myself someday. It just sounds so fun. And they went to a variety of places together, the Stuarts and the Gardeners. One in particular was Italy to Rome, Milan, and Venice. And it was here that Isabella found herself falling in love with Italian culture, learning the language. She just became so obsessed with Italy. And this would come in handy later on, which we'll get to. It was when the families were in Rome that Isabella first met Jack, who was Julia and Eliza's brother. They also united with one other family, the Watersons, while they were there. So they joined forces with another family. And the Watersons had a daughter named Helen. So it was quite the squad in Rome, the girls, Jack, the families. But because this is the most accurate thing ever, Jack hardly noticed Isabella. Instead, he had his eye on the Watterson's daughter, Helen, and he even wrote home to his brother and said, Helen has grown into a very tall, handsome, and stylish young lady and is a very nice girl. But unexpectedly, Helen became very sick while traveling after actually climbing Mount Vesuvius which is funny because I, not funny, oh my God, it's not funny that she got sick, but it's funny that it was Mount Vesuvius because I've actually hiked that before and it's very hard. When I was studying abroad, we had like gone out the night before. I just feel like I was drinking the entire time I was abroad in Italy because, you know, everyone drinks with lunch there. They drink, it just doesn't matter. The wine is always flowing. And I went from that or whatever, like lunch to hiking Mount Vesuvius. And it was a very hard hike, let me tell you that. So Helen got sick and she actually very sadly would later die from malaria that she got while on the trip in Naples, which is just very sad. But needless to say, Helen and Jack's flirtation ended there. So after their travels, they all went back to the U.S. And it was there that Isabella made a much stronger impression on Jack Gardner. In the winter of 1858, she went from New York to visit her friend Julia Gardner, her bestie, in Boston. And Julia wrote in a letter to her father in 1859, she said, I have been enjoying extremely Belle's visit here. And I think she also, for we have been very gay, although a great deal of our enjoyment was in a quiet way, small tea parties, etc. The other day, we had a delightful excursion. Uh, the sleigh ride, Cleopatra's barge, called for us about seven o'clock. <laughs> I'm having a hard time reading this. Seven o'clock, and we drove out of town in company with some 20 other people, all well bundled up and all in excellent spirits. So it sounds like they just like had a squad that were just going around town in their rich sort of way. And had a great time with Isabella visiting. Another record of her trip to Boston and the impact that Isabella made on the family is something that she actually tucked away. Isabella was known for keeping a lot of things, a lot of uh, correspondence, a lot of letters, whatever. But Jack's eldest brother, Joseph, 
wrote to Isabella in a letter. He said, May your own path in life be always strewn with flowers as gay as those which spring up everywhere around you under the vivifying influence of your sunny glance. So they loved her. The family loved her. And Jack soon became smitten with Isabella. He wrote her a note that was actually in the book that I read. It was just like pasted in. Very hard to read though, but I did get like the first line. It said, dear Bella, like, please don't forget me. I beg you or please remember me, something like that, Uh, which is really cute. Young love. But think about, think about it, okay? How scandalous this must have been. Jack, after all, was a 21-year-old bachelor who had just joined the old money family business again after a couple years at Harvard, and he was descended from several generations of notable Massachusetts families. He was definitely expected to marry a Boston girl from a similar sort of old money background as his brothers Joseph and George had, but instead he defied all expectations, the book said. The book says that the details of Jack and Isabella's courtship was just not well documented. It was very private, I guess, or like the correspondence was not well saved. So no one really knows how it went down. But all we know is it was very quick. They were engaged by the end of February 1859. So that was literally 10 weeks after Isabella went to visit the family. They were engaged. So things moved very quickly. But things did move pretty quickly back then in general, I feel like. But Jack and Isabella were thrilled about their engagement. Isabella wrote to her future sister-in-law and bestie, Julia. She said, Surely no one has so many causes to rejoice as myself. Independent of the great event, the very kind letters and expressions of satisfaction that I've received from your family make me feel deeply sensible of the happiness that is my lot. And Jack wrote to his brother, George, To use your expression, I've gone and done it. You probably are not surprised. The young lady has appeared charming since I've been here, and I'm confident you will soon learn to love her, not only on my account, but her own. So this is like an old, old writing way of saying, I love her. I love him. They were just smitten, and it's so freaking cute. So the two of them, John Lowell Gardner Jr. and Isabella Stewart, married in New York City. The wedding was at Grace Church, where Isabella and her family were members on April 10th, 1860, just days before Isabella's 20th birthday. And she was then on legally Mrs. Jack, which was a nickname that would follow her for the rest of her life. They went on their honeymoon in Washington, D.C., actually, which is interesting, and returned as happy as possible, according to a letter written by Jack's sister, Julia. Julia wrote a lot. Julia was a big reason why we know as much as we know, because that girl liked to write letters. But The couple moved to Boston and they began their married life together, making plans for establishing a home in the new expensive Back Bay neighborhood where Isabella's dad had purchased a plot of land for the young couple. And some notes in Jack's diary shows that he was really taking note of the new residence, like he was planning, he was mapping out furniture and really helping with the process. Like it wasn't just Isabella's job to set up the home. Like he really wanted to be a part of it, which is really cute because I feel like at the time it was very much like the woman's job to manage the home. But Jack made it very clear that he wanted them to be a team and collaborate and work together, which will really, I just got goosebumps saying that. I don't know why, because that's like just a normal thing now. But back then it just wasn't really a thing. Like he was very devoted to collaboration and to like operating as a team. Like their couple was a team. And this kind of is a a foreshadow to what will come. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. 
Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. These days you can't go anywhere on the internet without running into the most horrible takes. You know, your good old-fashioned homophobes or your self-proclaimed alpha males who are writing two-page articles titled How to Score the Perfect Female in 10 Days. If you are just as sick of these outdated takes as we are, you will love our podcast, Outspoken, hosted by me, Sam Collins, and my incredible partner, Shannon. We are an LGBT couple who have seen it all, been called it all, and are ready to take on the never-ending world of outrageous online opinions. Each week, we bring you the most ridiculous videos, hot takes, and hellbent news we come across on the internet. So, come laugh with us as we dismantle outdated ideologies and tear apart the most confident idiots on the internet on our podcast, Outspoken. You can follow and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you are listening right now. Anyway, let's talk more about Isabella. Newly married at just 20 years young, she began her life in Boston. No longer a New Yorker, she was in unfamiliar territory, she was a new money newcomer surrounded by old money, deeply rooted families. So as you can imagine, it was definitely hard for her to fit in at first. Not only was she this newcomer, but she also struggled to bear children, which was a big, big deal back then. She experienced a miscarriage just five months after her wedding, and she struggled for years. Meanwhile, her sisters-in-law, Jack's siblings, had no problem bearing children. So imagine how Isabella was feeling through all this. Even with the wealth that she had and her husband had, she was very likely heartbroken over this. But outside of their personal struggles, let's think about the time period. So this was a time of extreme tension in the U.S. It was the 1850s. So this was just before the Civil War and the divide between the northern and southern states on the issue of slavery was coming to a head. Massachusetts had a long history of abolitionist figures like Frederick Douglass and Charles Sumner. But of course, there were still those people who opposed, and it caused a lot of drama amongst all the classes. According to the book, Boston's elite was divided. Many have been members of the Whig Party, which you guys might remember from history class way back when, and the Whigs did not take a strong position on slavery in hopes of preserving economic ties between the slave and non-slave states. Like They didn't want the South to abandon them, so they were like, we're kind of wishy-washy on it. Many in Boston with economic interests tied to maintaining the status quo, including trade and commodities produced by enslaved people subscribe to the wig wishy-washy we're not going to take a strong stance on it philosophy for decades so that just gives you an idea of what the rich people were thinking in boston around the time of the civil war isabella's close friend maud howe elliott who was the daughter of suffrage and abolition activist julia ward howe was heckled in her dance class by the daughters of elite bostonian wigs as she later recounted they called her a nasty abolitionist so 
these people who were like, okay, we're not going to say we're okay with slavery, but we're not going to say we're not okay with slavery. But if you are a strong-willed, strong-rooted abolitionist, we're going to call you names and be rude to you. So there was a lot of drama, especially in these exclusive men's social clubs and like all of that is churning at the time. And so while it was pretty unclear what Isabella and Jack really thought of it all and their stance politically, Isabella was close friends with a lot of those who were in favor of abolishing slavery. So we can assume, but it's not totally clear. Just to give you an idea of the political landscape, something interesting I actually found in the book was that Jack never actually went to war. Like, you know how men were drafted and were expected to go to war to fight for the country. But Jack somehow did not serve in the Civil War. He likely took advantage of one of the rich people privileges of not having to go to war and just paying off someone else. Like literally I found out from this book. I don't know why I didn't know this before. Maybe I did and I just didn't like internalize or remember it from history class, but rich people could literally pay someone else to go to war for them or pay the government money to get them off the hook, which is what the book thinks or the people that wrote the book thinks is why Jack didn't go to war. But moral of the story here is that Jack was home with Isabella. And it was during this time that Isabella and Jack were still trying to have a baby. And luckily, In 1863, she finally carried a child full term. She gave birth to her son, Jackie, and he was born in June of that year. She absolutely adored him. Isabella was 23 when she had Jackie, and there's this one photograph of her holding him. And just, it gives you goosebumps. It's one of those photos of just a very young mom with her baby who, the baby is just like staring right at the camera, but the mom, she's just looking at him so lovingly. She was obsessed with him, but very tragic. Jackie ended up passing away in March of 1865, just a few months shy of his second birthday. And apparently every year on the death or the anniversary of the death, Isabella would lock herself away and just not speak to anyone. But after some time, after many years, she finally stopped doing this and actually just never mentioned him ever again because it was definitely just too painful. So that was the last of their trying to have a child. But instead of just letting the loss really get to her, she was forced back into her love of traveling or she got herself out of it and was like, you know what? I'm just going to focus my energy somewhere else. And she focused it on traveling. That old spirit that she lost when her son died was reawakened during her travels to Scandinavia, to Russia, Central Europe. And Jack went along with her on most of her 23 international voyages to 38 countries. And not only did Isabella catch this travel bug, but she also threw herself back into school and learning. She went to Harvard and busied herself with a huge circle of academic friends, international cultures, poetry, rare books, and fine art. And of course, continued to travel alongside Jack. They both were travel buddies. And they actually, while they were on their travels, both kept diaries uh, recording various things from the trip. And Jack's diaries all kind of showed the amount of kilometers traveled and the money that was spent, very practical things, while Isabella's diary had 
just a series of collages, which I think is so cool. It's very much what I do when I travel. I keep a journal and I collage. I like throw in like receipts and different things from the trip postcards. I draw little like sketches of buildings and stuff. Like that's so how I do it too. So I loved reading that, that she was very visual in how she recounted the travels and was clearly very, very inspired. And one example, when they went to China, they arrived in Shanghai from Japan. This was the autumn of 1883. And from the first day when she was there, she referred to this place, the Middle Kingdom, which was what she called it at the time, Isabella recorded a wide variety of her experiences from the unique to the everyday. She would talk about Chinese culture in such an interesting way in this journal page. She would talk about uh, the street scenes and the local people and how they dressed and how they acted and like the different places she went. She just like really took in her travels and her journals are very clear. Like she just loved culture of different places. She loved it. Back home, the gardeners had several homes that Isabella took great joy in decorating with all the treasures and art pieces that she got from all of her trips. She also spent, like I said, a lot of time in those academic circles with people that believed different things than her, and she really was able to figure out her opinions and ideas and just get smarter and more wise, more worldly, and she was really pursuing this education as a woman. So interesting. And even uh, there was this one note in the book that she dined with Oscar Wilde and he somehow she found or he gave them to her. I don't really know how she came into acquiring these, but she got some scandalous poems that Oscar would send his lover, Alfred. And so she got exposed to all different sorts of people, all different sorts of beliefs. And this really would shape who she was. She didn't let that loss of her child seal her fate. Like she really decided that she's like this. I have one life. I have one shot at this. I'm going to do as much as I can with what I have. Because like I said, she was this wealthy woman. She has all these resources. How can she give back? She started to, she, you know, would create these funds for women and other people to get educated. Like with what she had, she really did what she could. And she became very comfortable in herself during this time. And the more comfortable that she became in herself, the more she broke the rules. And there's this one image that if the internet was around, it would have broken the internet at the time, okay? It's like, think of the Kim K picture where she has the champagne bottle balanced on her butt. (laughs) Like, it was like the equivalent of that at the time. There's this portrait that uh, looks to be painted, and it's actually the cover of the book that I read. And I saw it, and I was like, wow, what an interesting outfit that she's wearing at the time, because it shows Isabella with her short hair, her fair complexion. She had this, like, shortly cropped hair, fair complexion. She was dressed in this form-fitting, low-cut for the time, honestly, even low-cut for now. Like, you couldn't wear this dress to work, you know? Black dress. And she has, like, it really emphasizes her figure, her full hips, her small waist, and her hands are clasped just under her stomach. And I read that she commissioned a man named John Singer Sargent to paint this of her. And they'd met in 1886. And just two years later in 1888, she asked her to paint her in a way that combined her interests in the world and travel, places she'd gone to and loved, and just who she was as a person. And this portrait, which she displayed proudly, created such controversy, which some say that she actually really enjoyed, like she maybe wanted to shock people. 
The dress was scandalous. It was tight. It was low cut. It emphasized her figure. And in the book, they say that Jack actually asked Isabella to not show the portrait again publicly while he was alive. (laughs) He was like, honey, I love that you did this. Like he was very supportive, very kind man. But he's like, let's just keep this private. And Isabella kept it in a private gallery during the duration of her life. But this was a step. This was a step and it really boosted her confidence regardless. And this would just go on to inspire so, so much more that she would do. And things were about to change for Isabella in a huge, huge way. So the gardeners, Jack and Isabella, were wealthy. There was no disputing that. But when Isabella's dad passed away in 1891, this was about to be transformed in a massive way. As his only surviving child, Isabella inherited $2.75 million from her dad when he died. And this would be about $78 million today. $78 million. Like, I can't even imagine that much money. So her and Jack's fortune together would be about $5 million back then and $142 million today. And This just, okay, when I hear this, it sounds like a massive amount of money, obviously, but they weren't billionaires, you know? Although this was a large sum of money and shot them up to the top tier of wealth in the US, this still paled in comparison to the huge industry men of the day, the Carnegies, the Fricks, the JP Morgans of the country. Of this, Isabella was apparently, according to the book, very aware. She once said, literally, verbatim, woe is me, why am I not Morgan or Frick? But nevertheless, the new money that she inherited from her dad's death transformed the scope of what she thought was possible for her life. It propelled her deeper into the art space. She began collecting extremely valuable art pieces, and each of them had a story to tell. She really latched onto pieces that not only were valuable, but also had a story, and she had a story to tell about each and everything she collected. It wasn't just this rich person just buying this thing because it's expensive. Expensive and because it's valuable, she had a legit story to tell and she loved telling them. And in the book, um, they said that this playwright, Thomas Russell Sullivan, went to dinner once at the Gardeners. They liked throwing these dinner parties. And this was in 1896. And he said this. He said, our hostess showed us her newest treasure, which only came this morning, a portrait of Rembrandt by himself in a green velvet doublet with a gold chain, a hat and a feather. It is a younger Rembrandt than we know, a masterpiece. The owner dying left instructions that if it did not bring a stated price within his time, limit, it should pass to the National Gallery. Mrs. Gardner, hearing this, cabled the money two days before the time expired, and henceforth the Rembrandt will hang in her drawing room, cheek by jowl, with her Van Eyck, her Van der Meer, her Botticelli, her Lippo Lippi, I might be saying that wrong, her Lucas Grenache. I need to like take a class on art, Grenache. I'm so bad at pronouncing these things. If you love art and you're cringing, I'm sorry. Uh, Fine examples all he said. Her other purchases of this year include a man's portrait by Batista Moroni, a beautiful seated figure of Mrs. Moody, the actress by Romney, an old man in a brilliant red robe. So day by day, the wonderful Musée Gardner gains in value. So she's just acquiring all these art pieces, but they all are so unique and different, all from different parts of the world, not all just like one country, one artist. Like she was a collector who cared about the stories and really, it's just crazy. I love it. I love her. I don't know where I love her. So Isabella's collection was growing and more and more people urged her to kind of pursue this dream that she had, which she told some people she really, it was her dream to create 
a gallery or a place where not only her and her rich friends could see these things, the whole public, everyone who had an interest in art or didn't even know they had an interest in art could see these things. And so she commissioned an architect to help her bring this dream to reality. She had this home where all of these art pieces were were hanging and she really, you know, curated them in such an artful way. So she's like, I want to make this into an actual place where people can come, but it'll still be my home. Like she wanted it to be this like home gallery of sorts, a home museum, as she called it, which is an interesting concept if you think about it, like letting people into your house that you live in and you sleep in and you you know, do things in and be like, oh, come on in. Very interesting. And it was very um, novelty for the day. Like it just wasn't something that was really widely done. So she had this dream. And then her husband, Jack, her like partner in crime, gave his two cents on the idea. He said to Isabella, he's like, maybe the home should remain the home, considering its location and how close it was to other homes on the block. And maybe instead we should just buy this other piece of land and build a museum from scratch because they could, because wealth, why not? Like, why don't you just call Taylor up? Just call Taylor up and buy a plot of land and build a museum from scratch. And she was unsure about the idea because she had put all this work into cultivating this like museum home idea. But before they could talk about it further, Jack Gardner passed away suddenly on December 10th, 1898 from a stroke. And the loss of her partner in crime was tragic for Isabella. Like this was her beloved husband, a man that she traveled with and did life with. And it just must have been so, so sad for her. But she channeled her grief into launching into the project. She took Jack's advice and decided to find a plot of land and build something from scratch. And this was a good distraction for her amidst like the grief that she was experiencing. And just two weeks after Jack's funeral, she surprised her architect friend, Willard T. Sears, with a new plan, not just, you know, the museum home idea. She's like, let's do this new plan. Jack, his like dying wish pretty much was for me to create this new museum from scratch. So let's do it. And according to Sears, the architect, she had purchased a lot in Boston's Marshy Fenway district and instructed him, the architect, to come up with a brand new plan based on this new idea of building something from scratch on this marshy land. And it would end up being her museum, which we'll get into. So the lot itself where she decided to build was facing a park and it was largely surrounded by undeveloped land, which people actually referred to as the dump. And Isabella, she was like, yep, this is perfect. And it was actually the only available lot in the area. So it actually had to do. And she transformed the dump. Let's just say that. Construction took place between 1899 and 1901, and it ended up costing close to like $20 million in today's currency, which, you know, no price was too much for this dream of Isabella's. And the building, once it was completed or as it was being created, people noticed it really resembled a palace on the Grand Canal in Venice, Italy. Like it was very Venetian in flavor, which was not an accident. We know that Isabella loved Italy. And as we remember, this was where she first met her husband, Jack, and fell in love with the Italian culture. The building had these elaborate windows, carved balconies. And I don't know what this is called, but if you look at photos of it, it has this like open concept middle to it. Like it's almost like the middle was carved out and it's like this indoor outdoor sort of vibe though it was all indoor it's there's like a a center sort of like vestibule of sorts where there would be like musicians playing and like 
you know, each floor had this sort of thing where there was the rooms and there's like the center that was kind of open. And I guess this was a very European sort of thing to do. So Isabella was crafting her dream. She was so excited about this. This was something that she really had wanted to do for so long. But people had things to say about it. Obviously, people had things to say. The rumor mill was running rampant. People were talking shit about her in the articles, in the newspaper. And one article actually claimed that Isabella had literally bought Florence, Italy's grandest palace and shipped it to America and was just like reconstructing it in Boston but like she literally copy pasted something, which just like was not true. Uh, but people talked about that. They also wrote this uh, headline, Weird Wall Shuts Mrs. Jack Gardner's Palace In From the World and Causes Speculation Among the Curious Who Watch It Growing. So people were like, what the heck's going on in there? This was in 1901. So instead of you know, getting excited and celebrating this new build, the newspapers were dismissing what she was creating. One even said that it was whim of a woman. And this was in 1899, the New York Journal and Advertiser. People talked like so much. They were gossiping. They were dismissive of her saying that this like wacky woman was just deciding to do this random build for no reason. She was grieving. And so she was going crazy. Like people literally spun so many lies about her. So people outside the walls of the museum were talking shit about her. And even people inside the walls were her architect, Willard Sears, you know, from what I've read, also kind of thought she was crazy, thought that her dreams were too big, thought that her ideas for the space just weren't going to work. And he constantly told her that they couldn't do things. And she's like, no, make it happen. Like they fought. But I, I feel like this sort of fighting is kind of normal with someone that maybe just doesn't understand, but you're going to push him to his fullest potential. Like, you know, she, they had a that sort of relationship. But the book actually says, and I fully agree with this, like the sexism here is just something. I mean, if Isabella had been a man, she would have been written about in such a different light. Like she would have been called this brilliant and hard-nosed business titan who stood by their beliefs in the face of all challenges, the book said. And I fully agree with that. Like it really rings true to the Taylor Swift song, you know, like I would be complex. I would be cool. You know the one. Anyway, so let's continue. So Isabella would go on to create the first purpose-built museum, the book calls it, established in the U.S. by a woman. She brought so many famous works to the U.S. by many leading Italian Renaissance artists like Botticelli, Raphael. She was a pioneer in the collecting space, not only of Renaissance art, but also of stained glass, Romanesque sculpture, Chinese antiquities, among other art forms and periods. And she didn't really try to completely carbon copy replicate the environment of these different cultures. She instead kind of created her own fusion. Like, I think of these restaurants that are like, you know, this culture, that culture fusion. That's how I see what she created because she brought in, you know, inspiration or influences from all different corners of the world. But she created each room to be like, it's just so remarkable. If you look at the different pieces that are in each of her rooms in this museum, they don't all relate necessarily in terms of time period, in terms of where the artwork came from, but she created this like, it's so hard to put it into words, guys. I'm struggling. It's just such a good fusion of, of different things that interest her. And each room tells a story, but 
a story that she wished to tell. She would combine ancient with modern, East with West, Christianity with Buddhism, and she embraced modernity and broke new ground in museum building and the formation of taste in Gilded Age America. She loved a melting pot. And it was very similar to her diaries, if we remember the way that she would collage things in her diaries when she traveled. It seemed kind of like a museum version of a collage. Like, but it was all carefully done. Like she had this eye and a deep understanding for it all. She even had orchestra members come and play music that was carefully curated to match the mood. Like she was just an entertainer and she loved it. She loved it. And each piece of art that she acquired by male artists, by women artists, even all of them had an elaborate tale of how she'd come to acquire them. In the middle of winter on January 1st, 1903, Isabella opened her museum to the public between 300 and 400 guests from the cream of the crop of Boston society braved the cold, the book says, and traveled out to the museum, an area that was noted for being a landfill, to take part in her opening night. And Isabella greeted them like a Renaissance sovereign, the book says. As the Boston Symphony Orchestra played the overture to Mozart's magic flute in the music room, she opened its doors to reveal the glass-roofed courtyard filled with flowers and green foliage, a defiant gesture in the middle of winter. It was literally the middle of winter, guys. And she had, I told you, oh, it was a courtyard. That's the word I was looking for earlier. It's a courtyard in the center of the museum. And it was just all green, even though it was the middle of winter. The artwork glistened to the light of a thousand lit candles. Friends were overwhelmed. William James, philosopher and brother of the writer Henry James, exclaimed that it was quite in the line of a gospel miracle. His brother later teased Gardner, is the Pope going to sell you one of the rooms of the Vatican? In the aftermath of the opening, Charles Eliot Norton described the heady atmosphere, palace and gallery, there is no other word for it, are such an exhibition of the genius of a woman of wealth as never seen before, the building of which she is the sole architect, which isn't necessarily true, but she definitely had like a huge hand in it, like the actual guy was not much help, he says, is admirably designed. I know of no private collection in Europe which compares with this in the uniform level of the works it contains. So nearly everybody was a fan of the museum. And of course, you know, once this opening day, over time, it opened fully to the public and she created this thing. Like through her grief, she decided to persevere you know, even though she lost her children, her husband, she decided to immerse herself in culture. Granted, she had, I want to make it very clear, I'm aware that she had privilege, she had wealth, she had the ability, but she also was a woman in the 1850s to 1900s. Like, we have to remember the time period she was mocked, she was ridiculed, and yet she persevered, which is still extremely, extremely inspiring. Like, I'm inspired by this. And so Isabella ended up passing away on July 17, 1924, in her living quarters on the fourth floor of the museum. She left detailed instructions for her funeral, and her niece, Olga, and Morris Carter carried out her wishes to the letter. And this letter, guys, is so Isabella. Like, it's so detailed in the aesthetic, the vibe of her own funeral, like very inspiring. I'm going to read a little section of it. So it says, directions for my funeral. Please have an oak coffin, not a black cloth casket. I want it long enough that inside the head is not jammed in as so often happens. Please use the purple 
Paul, which is now at the Church of the Advent, have it put over the coffin at Fenway Court as soon as the lid is on and do not have it ever underlined, taken off. I should like to have the coffin carried up the aisle high on the shoulders, as it were. It would be very nice if six or eight of the Brooklyn men were strong enough and can do it, but they would have to be told exactly how to do it. If violets are in season, I should like to have one long cross of them on the coffin going the whole length and the arms of the cross the whole width with a small bunch of white heather and white roses attached. If not violet season, I should like to have white roses and white heather the cross still being of the entire length and width of the coffin, the enclosed piece of tartan ribbon to be tied on the cross somewhere. So she literally enclosed a piece of ribbon that she wanted to be used. Um, crossed somewhere inconspicuously, whether violets or white roses and Heather. Forgive me. This was like literally only one section of the letter, guys. Like, I'm not going to read all of it, but she says at the very end, forgive me for all these details. I think it may perhaps make it easier for you. Isabella Stewart Gardner. P.S. My burial clothes I have arranged with Ella, who I assume was like her maid or her lady's attendant. Please have the coffin bought as soon as possible that I may instantly be placed in and be in the chapel at Fenway Court until the funeral. I should like to have a small piece of white heather by my hands when laying there and have the entire top of the coffin off. When it is best to put the top on, please have the purple pall put over it directly. ISG. So this woman, <laughs> she cared about the aesthetics. She was creative. She was educated and inspiring. And yeah, no one really knows about her. And so I wanted to talk about her. And this book did such an amazing job. I'm going to have it linked in the show notes. These two people that worked at the museum more recently, obviously, like after her death, decided to dispel rumors because there's actually, I was reading online, there's so many rumors about her, about how she had all these affairs, which were never proven and that she was flirty and like overly sexual, but like to a point where it was like demeaning. And there's no like confirmation that these things were true. And it was just jealous people that didn't understand her brilliance and her vision. And today, this museum can still be enjoyed by everybody in Boston, though obviously those 13 paintings are missing. I wonder what Isabella would think of that. Like, or what, I wonder what she would do if she were alive to have seen that or have witnessed that. But that being said, Obviously, the museum is really trying to get the artwork back. Like on their website, it says the return of Gardner's works remains a top priority. The museum, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office are still seeking viable leads that could result in safe return of the art. The museum is offering a $10 million reward for information leading directly to the safe return of all the stolen works. And a separate reward of $100,000 is being offered for the return of the Napoleonic Eagle Finial, which is actually, I watched the documentary and this was not as priceless of an artwork. It was just like flag of sorts. But anyway, so it says anyone with information about the stolen work should contact Director of Security Anthony Amore at 617-278-5114. So guys, if you have any information, definitely contact them. But they're still trying to find them. I wonder if they ever will. I'm really curious because it has been like over 30 years now, so it's unclear. But I did want to just tell you guys a story about this woman, Isabella Stewart Gardner, and how she created this museum and how she worked through the grief and made it happen. And it's inspiring. So that is my tale, everyone, this week. It was a little longer than normal, but it was a good one, I think. And with that, I will talk to you guys all next Thursday. I hope you guys have a fabulous rest of your day. Bye.
Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com.